Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Want to play a game? Sure! I spy with my little eye something that begins with the letter V. Huh. Oh, Victorian women who break social convention and gather covert intelligence by any means necessary about activities or intentions of opposing sides of the American Civil War. The end. Let's talk about two Civil War spies, North and South. But first, let's drop these two women into history. In 1900, L. Frank Baum's Wonderful World of Oz was first published. The design of the front-wheel drive car was patented, although it wouldn't be built for another four years. Prohibitionist Carrie Nation smashed her first bar with a hatchet in the name of temperance. The Michelin Guide was first published to encourage car use and to boost tire sales. Related, the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company was founded. The Boer War in South Africa and the Boxer Rebellion in China were both in full swing. U.S. Congress claimed and organized Hawaii into a U.S. territory. Although only open for seven months, 50 million visitors passed through the Exposition Universelle, the World's Fair in Paris. Zelda Fitzgerald, Margaret Mitchell, and Anne Frank's mother, Edith, were all born. Frederick Nietzsche and Oscar Wilde both passed away. And in 1900, Civil War spies Elizabeth Van Lu and Belle Boyd both died. Hi, it's Susan. You just have me today. And I would like to talk about the lives of two very different women who were Civil War spies on opposite sides of the conflict. Women's desires to help the cause and assist their side of the U.S. Civil War went beyond rolling bandages and sewing uniforms. Because few men saw them as threats, and they possessed charm cultivated to engage men in conversation, helped by the fashion of the time, as well as propriety, perfectly set up the hundreds of women who engaged in espionage during the Civil War. Those hoop skirts and their support system, perfect for hanging all kinds of contraband or messages or supplies undetected. I mean, who's going to ask a woman to raise her skirts for inspection? In just over two weeks, one Kentucky woman managed to smuggle over 200 Colt revolvers tied to the hoops of her hoop skirt. There were letters stitched into corsets. There was a whole cipher of folding fan language. Even letters and supplies were rolled into women's hair. Of course, over the years of the Civil War, Soldiers and guards caught on to what some women were doing, and they did begin searching women's garments a little more closely. Some were caught and imprisoned, but all of them became more experienced and definitely more devious as time went on. First up, Union spy Elizabeth Van Lu. Elizabeth Louise Van Lu was born on October 15, 1818, in Richmond, Virginia. She was the first of three children of John Van Lu and Eliza Baker Van Lu. Papa John was originally from Jamaica, New York. Now it's part of Queens, and surprising to me, it wasn't named after the Caribbean island, but both places' names did come from the same source. That would be anglicized indigenous words. 
But if the Dutch had their way, the New York version would be called Rustdorp, which means rest town. Papa's family was part of that Dutch immigration to what we consider New York now in the 1600s. He grew up there, learned a trade. Specifically, that trade was trade. (laughs) He did his time learning about the mercantile business, worked in mercantile shops in New York, and then set off on his own in the early 1800s to open a hardware business in Richmond, Virginia. Elizabeth's mother, Eliza, was also a Yankee. She was born in Philadelphia. Her father was a celebrated Revolutionary War soldier. And then he served three terms as mayor of Philadelphia. He was an active abolitionist. Unfortunately, he passed away when Eliza was just an infant, although the tales of his life lived on long afterwards within her family. When Eliza was just 10, her mother died, and Eliza was sent off to live with her brother in Richmond, Virginia. And it was there that Eliza and John met and married in 1818. We don't know a lot about Eliza or John, how they met, where they met, but John had been in Richmond for a while, and his timing couldn't have been more perfect. The area was starting to grow really fast. In the first 20 years of the Van Loo's marriage, the population of Richmond, Virginia would nearly double, and that quiet river town became a bustling modern city. And all those buildings needed things that they could acquire at a hardware store. Papa's was the first like it in the area. So things that people needed, not just for building of the houses, but pens and cutlery and scissors and razors and knives, John Van Loo could get for them. The year after the Van Loo's were married, the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's dream school, was being built 70 or so miles away. And once things were built, they needed glassware and cutlery and all sorts of things. And John Van Loo was a major supplier of all of those things. After the first year, baby Elizabeth was born. She was joined by sister Anna Paulina and her brother John Newton within five years. Despite being Yankees, this was still only the 1820s, and the family was able to assimilate very easily into Richmond society. The first home that they bought was an upper-middle-class house just at the edge of the most elite neighborhood, the Church Hill District. John and Eliza filled their home with lots of very fine things. Papa, of course, knew a lot of guys. But they also filled it with books. Both of Elizabeth's parents were avid readers. While Papa did keep tight control of his money, he considered that his secret to success, that he never lived beyond their means. He did budget up to $50 a year. That's nearly $1,522. That was devoted just for the purchase of books. Later in life, Elizabeth would remember, quote, Mother had the reading time, and when Father would come home and they had gone to bed, I remember, as we slept in adjoining rooms, hearing her delicious rehash of all that she had read. Elizabeth, say it with me, we say it on the show a lot of times about the women that we profile, Elizabeth was allowed access to her family's library. Elizabeth and her brother and sister were educated by tutors, but when Elizabeth was a little bit older, 
she, and most likely a governess, were sent up to Philadelphia to live with Eliza's family members and attend the same Quaker school that Eliza had gone to. And what school was that? I wish I could tell you. No records have yet been discovered, but it was in this environment, in the Quaker environment, it's easy to say that in the 1840s, she was most likely exposed to a lot of abolitionist ideas, which is great. That's what education is for, right? It's supposed to enlighten us. When an enlightened Elizabeth returned to Richmond as a teen, she must have had a very eye-opening moment when she saw, since being exposed to all that abolitionist talk, her family's own enslaved staff. Richmond and the University of Virginia, the Southern economy, was based on slave labor. The Van Loos were a prosperous Southern family. A measure of your place in antebellum society in the region was being slaveholders. The Van Loos, at about the time Elizabeth would have returned home, had up to 15 enslaved people working in their home. But it was also about this time that the Van Loos were moving on up into the heart of that elite district, Church Hill. The mansion that Papa bought was a three-story, 14-room mansion. It covered an entire block, and it was located just across the street from the church on that hill, St. John's Episcopal Church. That was the place where, 60 years before the Van Loos moved into Church Hill, founding father Patrick Henry had given his battle cry speech for the Revolutionary War that said, Give me liberty or give me death. This new mansion was surrounded by beautiful gardens that would later earn Mama Eliza several awards from the Henrico Agricultural and Horticultural Society. It was the perfect home for entertaining, and the Van Loos did just that. Not only Papa John's Whig political party pals, but also such big names as Chief Justice John Marshall, Edgar Allan Poe, and the Swedish Nightingale herself— opera singer Jenny Lynn were all in attendance at soirees at the Van Loos. This was a society family. And in society families of the time, young ladies like Elizabeth was of the age to become a belle, to come out, to have her debut. It was time for her to find a husband, time for those parties and balls. And Elizabeth, who was described by her own bestie, Eliza Carrington, who lived in the neighborhood, Eliza had said that Elizabeth was, quote, as a maiden, she possessed a delicate physique, her stature small. Elizabeth was smart and witty. She had lots of friends, and presumably she had suitors, at least according to family lore. She did all the right things to find a husband, including accompanying her parents to social hotspots like White Sulphur Springs. Papa John had developed an undiagnosed illness, and he was being treated with the waters from the springs. But White Sulphur Springs was more than just a place to go for the waters. It was full of social activities, which Elizabeth would have participated in. While family lore has some stories of possible beaux and future husbands, Elizabeth never married. And when she was 25, her life changed when her father died of that illness. He was only 53 years old. 
In addition to that lovely library, there's other things that keep popping out about this family that was very unusual. And one of them was his will. In his will, he left each of his children $10,1840, which comes out to about $3 million each. In Elizabeth and her sister Anna's case, it was explicitly said in the will that this money was exempt from the control of their future husbands. Marriage at the time meant that a woman turned all of her property over to her husband unless there was a clause just like the one that Papa John had put into his will. Also unusual for the time, he made his wife Eliza executrix of the estate. She got everything put in her name, properties. Papa John had been investing in real estate, family valuables, savings, and Eliza had the right to sell them as she needed with one exception. There was a stipulation for, as it said in the will, quote, all my slaves and the future increase of the females of them, so any children that they might have had. Eliza could neither sell nor free them. And that same stipulation would pass on when Eliza did, when the estate would have been divided between the three children who were adults at this point. What this tells me is that Mama Eliza's abolitionist roots were starting to grow out. This was a stipulation that Papa had put into the will later in his life. It wasn't in his original will. So it leads me to believe that he knew what his wife would have done for that. And he also knew what slaveholding in society meant for the family. And he was firmly entrenched in it. So he didn't want his wife to do what she was inclined to do. Okay, Eliza says, I can work with that. One of the first things she does is have one of the enslaved children in the house listed in the church directory as, quote, Mary Jane, a colored child belonging to Mrs. Van Lew. Eliza had Mary Jane baptized at their church, St. John's, which wasn't exactly unprecedented, but it was definitely unusual. Usually black children were baptized in members of the African-American Baptist Church in the area. Next, Eliza got to liquidating some of those assets, specifically land. Papa had bought all kinds of investment properties, and most of them Eliza started to sell for fair market value. But there were two lots that Eliza sold for far, far below the value of the ones that were right next to them. Let's just say in 2022 money, fair market value of these properties was $30,000. She sold them for just under $3,000 to a free Black woman, Mary Ann Ricks, who was 44, and the other lot to her daughter, Virginia Ricks, who was 22 at the time. Interesting. Okay. Then Eliza invited Swedish author and active abolitionist, free-thinking woman named Frederica Brema. She was in the United States to not only meet extraordinary women throughout the country, but to see slavery for herself up close. And she had heard about Eliza. So Eliza invited her to her home. Frederica, of course, met all of the Van Loo family. And of Elizabeth, she said she was, quote, a pleasing pale blonde who expressed so much compassion for the suffering of the slave that I was immediately attracted to her, end quote. 
Elizabeth must have been equally attracted to Frederica because she became Frederica's tour guide while she was in Richmond. Slowly, over time, Eliza began to bend and twist and squint her eyes and turn her head to the rules of John's will. It was called manumission. It was a fancy word for different methods to free enslaved people. There's not a whole lot of evidence to prove exactly what Eliza did, but there's enough for me to feel confident in telling you some of the things. Because seven years after Papa had died, a census counted 21 slaves at the Van Lu house. Ten years later, there were only two. And they were both older women who most likely Eliza just wanted to take care of. One of the things that Eliza, with Elizabeth's help, began to do was to hire out her staff, send them to people who owned other properties who would pay to have temporary help. In most cases, this money would have gone right into Eliza's pocket. But Eliza wasn't like all those other people in her neighborhood. And in this case, she let the people who did the work keep the money. And in some cases, it seems, they could have saved enough to buy their own freedom. In that 10-year period where the number of slaves listed at the house was drastically lowered, some of them landed on city registered as paid servants of the Van Loos properties. So while there's no paperwork that says that Eliza and Elizabeth had, quote, freed them, within the house, they were freed and they considered themselves free people and paid servants. Some of these people, most likely, I hate to keep saying that, but the evidence isn't strong enough for me to say this definitely happened, but most likely, Remember, all of Eliza's family up in Philadelphia, the family was always taking trips up to visit them, and they would always bring some of their staff, and some of their staff just wouldn't come back. While mostly in the Richmond area, there were slaveholders or people who supported the practice, this was the South. Richmond itself was big in the tobacco trade, and I can assure you that those tobacco plantation owners' children weren't out harvesting the crops. But there were a number of people in Eliza and Elizabeth's acquaintance who worked in the gray areas of the law, trying their best to abolish slavery however they could while still being active members of Richmond society. For instance, there was one case where an elderly friend of Elizabeth's deeded Elizabeth an enslaved woman, so presumably Elizabeth could help her to freedom. There are instances where Elizabeth used her inheritance to go to the slave markets to buy an enslaved person for the sole purpose of eventually freeing them. As the years went on, speaking of laws, by the time that second census was taken in 1860, there were laws on the books in Virginia that made it illegal to have abolitionist literature there was another law that said if a white person even says that there's no right to own slaves, another white man can arrest them on the spot. So if you say slavery should be outlawed, you can get arrested. Have the 1800s Amazon deliver you a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin? You could be arrested. It was a very dangerous time to be doing this type of activity that Elizabeth and Eliza were doing. They needed to be very covert 
while, again, still entertaining their neighbors and these people who they still considered friends, even though they didn't agree on the slave issue. That's in air quotes. One of the sneaky things that they did is, remember that girl Mary Jane who the ladies Van Lu had baptized at St. John's Episcopal Church? Her name is Mary Jane Richards. Let's take a little sidestep from Elizabeth's story to talk about Mary Jane Richards. She was born in about the 1840s. There are no records. She was a black child. She was born to a woman listed as a Van Lu slave, or her mother was white and her father was a, quote, Cuban, Spaniard, and Negro, or Mary Jane had no idea who her parents were. These are all versions that Mary Jane Richards told at one time or another. We do know Elizabeth Van Lu paid for a young teenage Mary Jane to go to New Jersey and study to become a missionary to specifically Liberia. The missionary movement was very big at this time. See our conversation about Queen Liliuokalani. It was also a way while working within the system, to free enslaved people. Because the thought was, you're going to educate them to be missionaries, send them to Liberia, in this case, to live. Not to just visit, not to just do a mission trip, but to live. It was perfectly acceptable, even admired in Virginia slave voting society. I firmly believe that Elizabeth Van Lu was a devout Christian, and that was part of her motivation Elizabeth had done her homework on Liberia. She just doesn't dive into things willy-nilly. She had looked into the country and the colonization movement in general and decided that this was perfect for Mary Jane. Mary Jane set sail for Liberia with a mostly Black contingent and one married white missionary couple. Mary Jane kept in contact with Elizabeth, but every letter they got a little more bleak and a little less, this is a great thing for me, I'm so excited. But look, at the time, Mary Jane is 14 years old. We can definitely give her a pass that she was scared. I mean, she was just a teenager. And she managed to hang on for five years. Those letters from Mary Jane weren't just politely asking. Mary Jane was pleading with Elizabeth to return her to home. So using all of her connections, Elizabeth was able to pull some strings to get Mary Jane back. She paid for her passage, and she did ask that Mary Jane travel, quote, comfortably and not in steerage. But yeah, of course she was put in steerage for 125 days. It was a 125-day passage. But after that time, Mary Jane returned to Richmond. But here's the catch. Virginia law at the time said that any Black person who leaves the state to be educated wasn't allowed to return to live in Virginia. They could visit for a very short period of time, but then they had to get out of the state. After Mary Jane had been back in Richmond for a while, she was arrested. She was picked up on charges of, quote, perambulating the streets and claiming to be a free person of color without having the usual certificate of freedom in her possession. And it didn't help Mary Jane's case that she gave a false name when she was picked up. Twice. The only way that Elizabeth could get Mary Jane out of these very serious charges 
she had to attest that, yes, Mary Jane was enslaved by the family. The fact that the Van Loos were deep into Richmond society, therefore trustworthy, and probably able to slip a few bribes, Elizabeth was able to get Mary Jane released. At this point, Elizabeth and Eliza are still managing to hide their slave-freeing activities. They were seen as upstanding Southern ladies, while Elizabeth's brother, John Newton Van Loo, ran the Van Loo hardware business. Anna got married. Elizabeth and Eliza continued to travel to their circle of friends in Philadelphia. They even traveled to Europe, all while maintaining an active social presence in Richmond. But all of this was a balancing act, and a very heavy weight was about to be put on one side. In Richmond, the Van Loos weren't exactly alone in trying to live life in that middle lane, hoping that some sort of a compromise could be reached. But at every single gathering, talk turned to secession from the Union. We go into the details a little bit more on this election and the Mary Todd Lincoln episodes. But at this point, a very bitter election season saw Abraham Lincoln defeating Stephen Douglas, James Breckinridge, and John Bell, the Southern candidate, and it tipped off the secession talks. It got to the boiling point, and states started to secede from the Union. South Carolina, then Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas had all voted to secede within a three-month period. And right before Mary Jane was arrested, Virginia became the eighth state to vote to secede from the Union. Not long after that, Richmond itself became the capital of the Confederate States of America. Elizabeth and Eliza found themselves at ground zero for the Confederacy. Slowly, the abolitionists of the area began to be known to one another. Before, it was just casual. Now it's serious. Now it's go time. In Richmond, soldiers, both captured Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers, are streaming into that capital. As the male folk were whipping up the soldiers and the armies— the white slaveholding Confederate women were in high production mode. The Church Hill ladies asked the Van Loos to help them. Eliza, Elizabeth, why don't you ladies come help us make uniforms for our boys? But Eliza and Elizabeth said, nah. Now, her neighbors, of course, did know that they had some abolitionist-leaning tendencies, and they were looked at suspiciously. Ten years earlier, Elizabeth had hung this ginormous U.S. flag on the front of their house. It was 11 feet by 20 feet, that big. And every time a new state joined the Union, Elizabeth sewed on a new star. But what was a symbol of pride just a month before was now a huge target. And Elizabeth reluctantly took it down and folded it up. The ladies' fan Lou looked around. What? else could they do? 
It definitely had to be something that kept them away from their society friend sewing circles where the sweet, polite women that they have known. Now, these ladies were talking about how they will kill Yankees on sight in an extremely unladylike language. Now, those Confederate soldiers, a lot of them are injured. And those Union soldiers, they're all prisoners. They had to be put someplace. Because Richmond was a big tobacco-producing and distributing city, there were a lot of tobacco storage and processing plants. These buildings were turned either into hospitals, mostly for Confederate soldiers, or prisons for the captured Union soldiers. The facility that was important to Elizabeth from the start was a former tobacco storage and processing plant that had actually been recently changed into L. Libby & Sons shipping supplies and grocery business. This giant building was converted into a prison. It was on a river. It was fairly isolated. There wasn't a lot of ways to get in and out of it, so it made a good prison But for Elizabeth, it was the closest prison to her. It was just six blocks from her house. She could walk there. The Libby prison quickly filled up to capacity with soldiers, and they had to be distributed. Ordinary soldiers went to one building, and the officers stayed at Libby prison. Elizabeth went down to Libby prison. She presented herself to the commander of the prison, who happened to be Lieutenant David Todd, That would be one of Mary Todd Lincoln's half-brothers. We talked about that when we talked about her. Um, Her family was one of those families that was literally split between the North and the South. And David was a Southern plantation owner, and he was also the commander of the Libby prison at the time. He wasn't known as being a very nice guy. He was known as being quite brutal to the prisoners. But Elizabeth went to him and she said, I would like to volunteer to be a nurse. And in what was probably an extraordinarily condescending way, Lieutenant Todd rejected her on the grounds that these Union prisoners don't need the likes of such a proper Southern lady taking care of them. You're too good for them, essentially. So she went above his head. Eventually, she got permission from the Confederate Brigadier General to bring books and gifts and food to the prison, although she wasn't allowed to go inside. But what she could do is she could charm the guards. She could charm the prison doctors. She could try to charm Lieutenant Todd. She could buy off certain guards. What she was trying to do was get some of those prisoners, some of those officers, released to a hospital situation where she could visit them where she could make union connections and get information on conditions in the prison, which were quite bleak. But she wanted to know what to bring that would make these people comfortable. Perfectly innocently, she began to bring gifts. But as she got more information from people she knew that were either working in the prison or prisoners who she was able to talk to at hospitals, she began to bring in and out coded messages. She would bring in a book with letters underlined that would make a message. She would bring those books back where the prisoners had put pinholes in different letters that created a message when you held it up to light. It spelled out words. 
as it became known that she was able to sneak messages out and work to get them into the hands of union officials, more and more prisoners inside, the word spread. She had a special custard dish with a warming section on the bottom. It was supposed to hold hot water to keep the food inside hot. She would wrap that in a blanket and bring it to the prison And when the guard would look at it, he'd feel the bottom, and it was extraordinarily hot. So he's like, well, that's full of water. I'm not going to touch it. And he would let that dish go into the prison. Well, inside that dish was messages. All the guards saw was one of their church-going society ladies coming to help the prisoners. In not a lot of time, Elizabeth was able to develop a network for delivery. There were five stations where these messages would go from. She would take them from the prison to her house, often hiding them in a hollow figurine next to her fireplace. The servants in the house, who were all formerly enslaved people of the Van Loos, but they stayed on to work for a salary, they would get them and pass them on to somebody else. So five different stations, these messages are hopscotching their way into the hands of union officers across the border. Sometimes, in addition to the prison, she would get messages that were gleaned from other servants or enslaved people in other households, things that they pick up. You know, we've talked about this before. If you want to know what's going on in a house, you talk to the servants. Oftentimes, these brandy-sipping, cigar-smoking, conversating, conversating, Confederate officers in Richmond thought that the enslaved people in their homes were either not listening or weren't smart enough to understand what was being said. But these people were taking that information and passing it on through other people to Elizabeth. She had created her own cipher, and she would write information down in invisible ink on a letter written in pen. It looked like like a friendly letter, but written in invisible ink on that paper, ink that would show up when it was dipped in milk, was the message that she was trying to get to the union officers. She would sometimes rip these pages up and create like a little puzzle. She would put them in someone's hollowed out shoe. Uh, one of her favorite tricks for sending information was to take a dozen eggs, and one of those eggs was hollowed out with the note slipped inside. So it looked just like one of the eggs. Through this method, Elizabeth was able to get information to union leaders about a group of a hundred or so union prisoners at the Libby prison who dug a tunnel underneath the road in front of the prison so that they could escape. Having this information, the Union Army was able to get people in to get some of those prisoners out. She was able to help return the body of a murdered 21-year-old Union colonel. The Confederates claimed that they had found information on his body about an assassination of President Jefferson Davis. So they took his body and they put it on display at a train depot. And then when they'd had enough of that, they buried it in an unmarked grave. But because of her network, Elizabeth was able to find somebody who happened to actually see them burying the body. She was able to get people to help exhume it, rebury it where she knew where it was until she could get the body back to the Union soldier's family. As all these messages are coming in from Richmond, 
Union General Benjamin Butler was informed that it was all the result of the work of Elizabeth Van Loo, that he was getting all this information. And what he did was make her the head of his spy network in Richmond. Now, remember our friend Mary Jane Richards, the little girl who was baptized at St. John's Church and who was a missionary in Liberia? She's still in the household of the Van Loos. Now, you're going to read a tale that says this, that Elizabeth Van Loo had, quote, a Negro girl of unusual intelligence hired at the Jefferson Davis Confederate White House in Richmond to spy on the activities there. The story goes that it was Mary Jane, who then was married and went by the name Mary Elizabeth Bowser. But as awesome as that story would be, it might not hold water. It seems to have been created after the war, at Elizabeth's death, passed down in Van Loo family lore. And because it's so awesome and repeated so often, it became canon. But as historians are tugging at the strings of this story, it's kind of unraveling. It could be true. Mary Jane Richards did work with the underground, and she did live with the Van Loo family. But whether or not she was working at the Confederate White House, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of support for that, I'm afraid. Speaking of myths, you will also read one in a lot of books about Elizabeth Van Loo is that Elizabeth, in an attempt to cover up her spy activities, would wander the streets in bizarre clothing, muttering to herself and acting like she was mentally ill, earning the name Crazy Bet. Crazy Bet? She can't be a union-loving traitor. She's just a harmless old kook, is basically how the story goes. But this nickname, it rose after her death by someone who had met her in her old age. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But he was kind of filling in the blanks to tell her life story. And it was sensationalized and printed and repeated so often, it sounded like it could be true. Well, the reality seems to be that, yeah, sometimes she did at the time during the war dress in clothes that were not normal to her, but she was probably doing it to hide her identity. And while she most likely did play dumb quite often, Elizabeth Van Loo's greatest disguise, as far as I'm concerned, was her ability to project herself as a Confederate, slave-owning, loyalist to the cause. Was she able to do it all the time? No. Suspicion did arise. At one point, the family was investigated. One of their neighbors had turned them in. And at another point, Elizabeth's own sister-in-law reported them. But even though their house was investigated and they were questioned, Elizabeth and Eliza were able to maintain their air of innocence. We couldn't possibly be spies for the Union. That's ridiculous. How dare you say such a thing about a woman like myself? They were able to pull it off. That's a great disguise. Finally, in 1865, the Union claimed their final victory. Richmond was being overrun by the Union Army. Elizabeth got her flag back up, and General Ulysses S. Grant himself, who was aware of Elizabeth's contribution to the Union cause, sent soldiers over to her house to protect her home. You've all seen Gone with the Wind. Atlanta burned. 
Richmond also burned, but not Elizabeth's home because it was being guarded. Now, there is one story that I love, and I I just hope it's true, is that when the soldiers arrived at her house, she wasn't there because she had gone to the very recently abandoned Confederate War Department building and was looking for anything that might be of value to the Union Army. While the war was over, the Confederate sentiments and beliefs of her neighbors didn't change except in one element. Now they knew, at least in the abstract, if not the details, of Elizabeth's wartime activities. They labeled her a spy. She wasn't really crazy about that. She said, quote, I do not know how they can call me a spy serving my own country within its recognized borders. For my loyalty to now be branded as a spy by my own country for which I was willing to lay down my life? Is that honorable or honest? God knows. Now, the U.S. government did know she was a spy, and they expressed their gratitude with a payment of about $2,000, which is just under about 40000 today for the services that the Van Loo family had provided. While she was grateful for that, I mean, the Van Loo hardware business wasn't doing so great because the name was tarnished in Richmond. But she also felt that she had contributed more than that much to the war effort. She was able to connect with United States government, War Department officials who championed her cause all the way to Congress. And Congress voted that she should receive another $5,000, which is about $100,000, to dollars $100, these days. But all the money in the world couldn't buy back her social standing. And she specifically was shunned by society. She wrote to a friend, quote, I am held in contempt and scorn by the narrow-minded men and women of my city for my loyalty, social living as utterly alone in the city of my birth as if I spoke a different language. A couple years later, Elizabeth was 51, and General Ulysses S. Grant became President Ulysses S. Grant. And one of the things he did in his first month was to nominate Elizabeth as postmaster of Richmond. Now, she wasn't the first female that this has happened to. Uh, That was back when the U.S. was the U.C., the United Colonies, back in 1775. And there were very few female postmasters. Most of them were in small towns, not in big cities like Richmond. Obviously, it was a controversial choice. I mean, the entire city is shunning her. But it passed, and she became postmaster of Richmond. It was a paid position, making about $75,020 a year. Her job was to oversee the postal offices, everything, the hiring, the signing of contracts with vendors. She controlled what went through the mail and what didn't. It was a pretty powerful position, and Elizabeth brought the same thoughtful process of moving secret messages to the Richmond postal system. She began to have mail delivered to people's houses instead of post office boxes. She hired mail carriers. She put mailboxes for outgoing mail around the city. She wrote what is essentially a best practices post office manual that was written for the patrons of the post office that explained all of the services that the post office provided and how to access them. But most importantly to her, she was able to use her platform, use her voice in the press to champion cause of civil rights for African-Americans. 
she even hired a lot of Black people to work in the post office. Elizabeth held this position for eight years. She ran a really tight postal ship, but then she entered into a really difficult time in her life. When Rutherford B. Hayes was elected president, she was dismissed from her position, and her mother, Eliza, died at 77. Maybe the hardest of all, the effects of their fall from society was painfully apparent when Elizabeth realized that the family didn't have enough friends to act as pallbearers. Now, one would think that a woman in a powerful government position in the 1860s and 70s would become active in women's suffrage. And she did. Our old friends Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were just getting busy about this time. Susan B. Anthony even visited Elizabeth early in Elizabeth's postmaster career. And Elizabeth did get involved in the suffrage movement. But the swing towards the suffragist efforts to try to get white women the vote before black women really turned Elizabeth off. As for employment, she was able to be hired as a clerk at the U.S. Post Office Department in Washington, D.C., a position that she held for about four years. But at the age of 65, ouch, she was bumped down to a job that had very little pay. She resigned and went back to Richmond. She did have many connections throughout the entire United States, and she knew she needed money. So she appealed to a family in Boston is actually relatives of the Paul Revere. These relatives, she had helped one of them during the war, and they organized with other families who had also benefited from Elizabeth's help and funded Elizabeth's living expenses. She continued to live in Richmond. Um, Her nieces came to live with her and kind of watch over her. The house fell into massive disrepair because she couldn't afford to get anything fixed. And then several years later, in fairly rapid succession, her brother died, then her sister, then the niece who had lived in the mansion with her at the time. Elizabeth developed what was called dropsy. It's edema. It's swelling of her body due to heart failure. She knew that her time was limited, and she contacted two of her sister's daughters and had them come and stay with her. And when the first one got there, she told her a big secret— After the war, Elizabeth had contacted the government asking for all of her file that they had on her about her activities during the war and her contributions. She had gotten a lot of that paperwork and had written a journal from it and had the paperwork in there. And the family secret was where she hid it. And then on September 25th, 1900, 81-year-old Elizabeth Van Loo passed away. With financial assistance from her friends in Boston, she was buried near her parents at the Shaco Hill Cemetery. Her niece did find that paperwork and handed it over to a gentleman who knew Elizabeth, like I said, later in her life when she was older and kind of cranky and with a very thin filter. So he knew her when she acted very eccentric. So he assumed that that's how she acted when she was younger. And that's when the crazy bet label seems to have been developed. Her friends in Boston bought a headstone for her grave and had a plaque engraved. It says, Elizabeth L. Van Loo, 1818 to 1900. She risked everything that is dear to man, friends, fortune, comfort, health, life itself, 
all for one absorbing desire of her heart that slavery might be abolished and the Union preserved. This boulder from the Capitol Hill in Boston is a tribute from Massachusetts friends. Now, while the plaque still remains here in 2020, the mansion does not. It was bought by a doctor who converted it into a sanitarium, but within 10 years, he was gone. The city of Richmond condemned the property, had it torn down, and built a school on the land. Bellevue Elementary School still stands in the history of the land, the work of Elizabeth and the work of a woman born free in 1864 in the house to one of Elizabeth's servants. Her name is Maggie Walker, and she went on to become the first African-American to open and become president of a bank. She also did a lot for civil rights, and her entire story, as well as Elizabeth's, is on the website of the Bellevue Elementary School. And now let's take a look at the life of a very different spy of the Civil War, Belle Boyd. Maria Isabel Boyd was born on May 9, 1844, in Bunker Hill, Virginia. She's the first of three surviving children of Benjamin Reed Boyd and Mary Glenn Boyd. Or she's the oldest of eight children. On this subject, the sources were extraordinarily contradicting. One set of sources said one thing. The other said something a little bit different, like... She was the oldest of three surviving children, or she was the oldest of eight children. So I suppose if Belle Boyd's story has a subtitle, it would be, or Papa Benjamin was second-generation Virginian. His great-great-grandparents had immigrated from Scotland just before the onset of the Revolutionary War. His relatives all fought in that Revolutionary War. His own great-grandfather was at Valley Forge. Benjamin owned a mercantile with his brothers. It was one of those general stores where if you need something, they can find it for you. These were the guys. I wish I could tell you how Benjamin and Mary Rebecca Glenn met. They were both from established families in the area who were on, like, the verge of well-to-do-ness. We know that in 1842, 26-year-old Benjamin married 16-year-old Mary Rebecca in just a couple years. Our subject, little Maria Isabel, was born, but she never went by Maria. She always went by Belle. The version that I'm most inclined to believe is this. If Mary and Benjamin thought that little Belle was the beginning of a very large family, Mary was only 18 years old. She had many years of childbearing ahead of her. They would have been dealt a crushing blow because for the next six years, at least four more children were born but didn't make it to their third birthday. It wouldn't be till Little Belle was six before the next sibling, a little sister named Mary, came along. And then when Belle was a teenager, her brother William was born. Now, the other version says that there were eight living children and that Mary was having children all the way to the end of her husband's life. I don't know. I'm sorry. I know you come to us for answers. But in this case, I'm going to say I'm not sure. 
If I was forced to give a definitive answer, I would probably sweat profusely and say it was the version that I just gave you with all those child losses. Just before Belle's sister Mary was born, the family moved from Bunker Hill to Martinsburg. Martinsburg is now in West Virginia. It's about 25 miles from the Pennsylvania-West Virginia line, kind of in the upper northern corner of West Virginia. Back then, it was Virginia. There's no West. The region is called the Shenandoah Valley. It's nestled in the Appalachian Mountains. And when the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad came through, when Bell was just a tiny tot— and we've talked about this before, when a railroad comes to a town, it is a huge economic boost. And in Martinsburg, not only did the railroad come, but they were able to build engine and machine shops for the railroad there in the town. So the town is doing really well. Later in her life, Belle would write her memoirs, but she had a very big personality then. And even as a kid, it sounds like she had one too. Belle was an adored and pampered child. She described herself later in life when she wrote her memoirs as kind of a tomboy who loved climbing trees as much as she loved attending tea parties. There's a tale that's told, even if it's not completely true, it shows the kind of personality that Belle had even as a young child. The story goes like this. A young Belle was told that she couldn't attend a party that her parents were throwing because she was too young. So Belle went outside, got on her horse, rode her horse into the house and said, Well, my horse is old enough to attend, isn't he? Now, doors and houses, are they big enough for horses to walk through? I don't know, but this house is still standing. And from the pictures, I don't see how a horse is going to get inside. When Belle was six, just before her little sister was born, Papa bought a lot in the town of Martinsburg, Virginia. He bought it for 350 1840s dollars, but really that wasn't as much as I thought it was when I ran it through the converter. It was about $12,000 in today's money, which kind of surprised me. But he bought a city lot in town, and within a year, he had built a brick, two-story, Greek Revival-style home for his family. When the house itself was completed, he built a brand new general store that was attached to the house. Later in her life, Belle described her childhood home as this, quote, Imagine a bright, warm sun shining upon a pretty two-story house, the walls of which are completely hidden by roses and honeysuckle in the most luxuriant bloom. At a short distance in front of it flows a broad, clear, rapid stream. Around it, the silver maples wave their graceful branches in the perfume-laden air of the South. Doesn't that sound lovely? (laughs) Now, with a house like that and a business and a very comfortable life in the South, it should come as absolutely no surprise that the family did have slaves. Several enslaved people lived in their home, including one named Eliza Corsi. How Eliza came to the family is kind of one of, another one of those mysteries in this story. Family lore says that Eliza had escaped the, quote, deep south and headed north. And when she met the Boyds, they took her in. Belle may also have taught Eliza how to read and write. 
More likely, she actually worked for one of Mary's family members and moved over to the Boyd's house. That's probably it. Later, Belle will call Eliza her maid. But uh, I direct your attention to the myth of the mammy. Regardless of how an enslaved person is described, whatever title they get, whatever loving member of the family they get, we have to remember that they are enslaved by this family. And that's what Eliza was. As far as Belle's early education goes, there was most likely tutors that came to the house. Uh, But we do know that at 12, she was sent away to Mount Washington Female College in Baltimore, Maryland. This school had just opened two years prior to Bell's arrival, so its reputation hadn't been established and it no longer exists. But it was all brand new, and it advertised all the brand new amenities for your daughters. It was a finishing school. For four years, Bell stayed there, and she was educated in a Christian environment with, quote, classic literature, European languages, music, and social graces. The lasting mark that Bell left on Mount Washington Female College is that in 1857, she took a ring that had a diamond on it, a ring that she was wearing, and she signed her name to a school window. Yes, vandalism 101. Of course, she knew that wasn't cool. So that may have been why she didn't actually sign her own name. Instead, she wrote Annie Bell, January 22nd, 1856. But then the six is kind of crossed out and there's a seven written right over it. There doesn't seem to be any discussion about whether or not Bell is the person who did this to that window. And I think that kind of tells us what kind of an independent rascal of a young lady she was. At the end of her four years in 1860, Bell graduated from Mount Washington. She said of this time it was, quote, the last time for many years to come that the daughters of the North and the South commingled in sisterly love and friendship without a thought to the volcano that was seething beneath our feet. Okay, it's 1860. Abraham Lincoln had just been elected president. The Confederate states were beginning to secede. Bell claims that in that year, she was presented to Washington, D.C. society and stayed there for a season, although there is some dispute about that. But after that season or after her graduation, she headed back to Martinsburg. She did enter Martinsburg society. And for about a year, she did what any young unmarried lady who has come out in society and is in want of a husband does. There were social calls and teas and dances and strolls. There were some ladylike pursuits. In Belle's case, horseback riding. She was known for her horsewomanship, but she was also known for her flirting. So as Belle is trying to live her young adult life, Virginians around the state are debating and voting on whether they should secede from the Union. We talked about it in the earlier story. We know what happens here. But unlike in Elizabeth Van Loo's Richmond, up here in Belle Boyd's Martinsburg, most of the residents of Martinsburg sided with the Union. They wanted to remain with the federal government. And when it came to the time to vote, Martinsburg residents voted three to one against secession. Unfortunately, the rest of Virginia did not vote that way. And Confederate troops began to pour into Martinsburg. 
And not long after that, the Union soldiers arrived. Now, Papa Ben was 44 at the time, but he was probably that one guy that voted for secession. He immediately volunteered at the age of 44 for the Confederate Army. He was assigned to join the 2nd Virginian, led by General Thomas J. Jackson, who history knows as Stonewall Jackson. Bell followed her father's politics. Quote, slavery, like all other imperfect forms of society, will have its day, but the time for its final extinction in the Confederate States of America has not yet arrived. Belle and her mom got busy doing the women's work to support their soldiers, sewing and provisioning and nursing if it needed. But with Papa Ben and a lot of the male folk of Martinsburg gone— and the Union Army advancing, because Martinsburg is so close to Pennsylvania, it's so close to northern states that are definitely not going to vote to secede, the Confederate Army showed up there first, and then the Union Army did, which was a welcome sight, again, for most of the people of Martinsburg, except, of course, the Boyd family. When the Union Army arrived, they began looking from house to house for things, and the ladies Boyd did not appreciate this intrusion one bit. When Union soldiers began to raise a federal flag over the Boyd house, Bell's mother screamed at them, quote, every member of my household will die before that flag shall be raised, end quote. One of the Union soldiers let fly language that was so salty and so offensive that it caused young Belle to reach into the pocket of her dress, pull out her pocket pistol, and shoot the soldier. The soldier was then, as they say, carried away, mortally wounded, and soon after expired. When the commanding officer investigated, he did arrest the other contributing soldiers, and he cleared Bell of any charges on the grounds that she was justified in her actions. But for 17-year-old Bell, it was a life-changing, life-affirming moment. When that happened, she even further committed herself to the Confederacy. Of course, Union supervising officers knew that the Boyds were not Union supporters. So they kept their eye on them, and Bell took the opportunity to use everything she had learned at her fine finishing school to attract a man and started to flirt and talk and just acquire information from the Union soldiers. And they were delighted to have such a charming young lady talking with them and giving them attention that they would tell her things. What Bill did with that information was to write down everything that she had heard and sent it with Eliza, her, quote, maid, sent it with Eliza to the closest Confederate officer. And that continued for a while. Messages were going to and from the Confederate camp with Eliza. But unfortunately, eventually one of Bell's notes got into Union hands. Bell was arrested. But again, her young age and her charm she just got off with a warning. And soon she was recruiting a couple of her like-minded friends to help her in these activities. And Belle's information wasn't going just to some general down the road. It was going to Stonewall Jackson himself and General P.G.T. Beauregard, 
General Beauregard, you know that name because he was the guy who led the Confederate Army in the very first battle of the Civil War at Fort Sumter. Bell adapted kind of a uniform of sorts. One of her most common outfits was this dark green riding dress with brass buttons down the front, the shoulder boards from a lieutenant colonel, and a belt from a rebel uniform. How she got those, I don't know. And she had a hat on with brass buttons around the rim from each of the Confederate states. Sometimes when she did her spying activity, she was dressed like a boy. It really didn't take her long to develop some pretty cunning methods of spying. Not only her flirting and talking with people to get information, sometimes she would just hide in a closet, an old school snoop. She began to write her notes in code. Belle may have been cunning and smart and sort of secretive, but word of her activities got out, and they went all the way to her father. Of course they did. She was sending her notes right to his commanding officer. Of course he's going to tell Ben what his daughter was doing. Ben was very worried that Union soldiers would also become aware of what Bell was doing. So he took leave and tried to get her further south to a relative's house in a town called Front Royal. Unfortunately, just after that, the Union took that city too. And Bell fled back to Martinsburg and continued her spying antics. Papa's fears were not unwarranted. Bell was arrested for spying. She was placed under arrest in a very plush hotel and brought meals, but released a week later and settled back in on her relative's property in Front Royal, Virginia. But since the Union Army had invaded that area, they were occupying the main house her relative's house. So she stayed in an outbuilding. But instead of just flirting for information this time, she hid in a closet and did some old school snooping. She just listened. Bell overheard plans for a Union assault on the Confederate army that was nearby. So she scribbled down her notes, anything she heard, but then couldn't figure out the best way to get it into the hands of a Confederate officer who could actually do something with this information. So she ran. She ran across enemy lines. She's dodging bullets, running, waving her hands when she finally sees their camp. Woohoo! I've got some information for you. But that camp was where Stonewall Jackson was. He was so grateful that the very next day he wrote her a thank you note. Quote, I thank you for myself and for the army for the immense service that you have rendered your country today. Hmm. But word of her activity is getting out. The press is starting to hear about it. She's not secret anymore. And she's getting nicknames like La Belle Rebelle or the Siren of the Shenandoah. And it really didn't take long for Belle to once again get arrested for those activities. This time, though, she landed in Old Capitol Prison in Washington, D.C. The Old Capitol Prison is no longer there, but on that land is the U.S. Supreme Court. That's a good upgrade. But Belle wasn't placed in a damp, dark, scary cell. No, she was placed in a very nice room and brought food. And the door to that room? It was to remain unlocked. Belle seems to be quite the extrovert, and she really needs the energy of other people. 
She would just sit out in the hallway and talk to people who were actually locked up. Sometimes she'd even sing with them. So she isn't under the harshest of conditions here at the old Capitol prison. And even more, she was in the papers. People are just writing about her. And they fall into one of two camps. They are either enchanted by her or they think she is just awful. One person who was a big fan described her as a slight figure in the freshest of summer toilette of cool pink muslin, close braids of dark hair shading clear pale cheeks and eyes that were made to sparkle, though the look in them was very sad. And then in another article, someone says, quote, the only ornament she requires to render herself perfectly beautiful was a Yankee halter encircling her neck. A Yankee halter is a noose. A few months later, Belle was released in a prisoner exchange. She went back home and she didn't know what to do. So she wrote to General Jackson for advice. So he basically told her, sit still, sit tight. People know too much about what you're doing. You're going to get yourself arrested again. And when you do, this time you won't get off so easily. And Belle tried. She even left Martinsburg. She left the whole Virginia area. She kind of did a tour of the South, going from one house of a friend to another. For about six months, she managed to keep herself out of trouble. But then she was arrested again and imprisoned this time. And this time, when she was released, she was banished to the South. They said, if you are ever across the line in Union territory, that's the last breath you're going to take. Just hanging out in the South again did not appeal to her, so she accepted an opportunity to deliver some Confederate papers from Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, himself to someone in England. It was still kind of a spy mission. It was a secret mission. And unfortunately, her escape ship was stopped by a Union Navy vessel. The boat that she was on was turned back and headed back to New York. Now, this is Yankee territory. She's not supposed to go there. Well, on board, she met an officer, Samuel Hardinge. He was supposed to be overseeing her activities and, you know, guarding her. But instead, he fell in love with her. They stopped in New York. After New York, the ship went on to Boston. (laughs) Even though she's not supposed to be up north, she's getting off the ship with Samuel chaperoning her and seeing the sights of New York. Then they get back on the ship and they go to Boston for a while. But by the time they arrive in Boston, 20-year-old Belle has accepted Samuel's proposal of marriage. But the federal government wanted nothing more to do with this troublesome. They're almost treating her like a little gnat that's flying around. I mean, they could be squashing it in their hands, but instead they're kind of shooing it away. And this time they banished Belle to Canada. She kind of liked that plan. She'd never been to Canada before. Even though he was a Union soldier, Hardinge hightailed it to England to just hang out and wait for Belle to get there. And she did. She followed. And on August 25th, 1864, Belle and Samuel were married in London. Belle needed money, and she knew one way to do it was to take advantage of all that she had done during the war that was still going on, by the way, across the ocean. 
So she set to writing her memoirs. She had help. She had a ghostwriter that was working with her. But a year later, the two volumes of Bell Boyd in Camp and Prison were on sale. But also around this time, she begins to call herself a widow. Hardinge kind of disappears from the narrative. We don't really know what happens. She's calling herself a widow, but he's still alive. Now, what most likely happened, she divorced him in London. He went back to the States, decided to start a new life in New Orleans, and on his way there, his ship sunk and he died. Although there are a couple more colorful options. Take your pick. It's like, choose your adventure. (laughs) Um, He went back to the United States to face charges of aiding a prisoner, that would be Belle, and just never went back to London. Or he just simply died, and she really was a widow. Or, and this one's so colorful, one source said that Samuel went back to the United States, went to San Francisco, and struck up a long-term relationship with author Charles Warren Stoddard. Hmm. So, like I said, choose your adventure. <laughs> but Belle is back in England, and she doesn't have a husband, but what she does have is a baby. She gives birth to a little baby she names Grace, but her finances are really getting low at this point. Yes, she sold some of her memoirs, but it wasn't enough to keep her living in a style to which she had become accustomed and to support a child. She took to the stage and the lecture circuit and did a show that was dramatic retellings of her activities during the war. But that war, it's over. And after changing hands 37 times between the Confederacy and the Union, the state of West Virginia is formed and Martinsburg is right in that West Virginia state. So now... (laughs) Now she's not even from Virginia anymore. After a while, Belle was getting homesick, so she took her act to the United States, this time with a show called The Perils of a Spy. Unfortunately, Belle Boyd imitators were a big deal in the show circuit, and she kept running into people who were pretending to be her or using the stories from her memoir for their own stage productions. So she just kind of eked out a living until at the age of 25, she's only 25, at the age of 25 in 1869, she married again, this time a man named John Swainston Hammond. For a woman who was a belle of the Confederacy and has already married one Union officer, John Hammond, he was actually a British officer who had left England during the Civil War to fight for the Union. So this Confederate Belle is on her second Yankee husband. And for the next 15 years, Belle and her family live in Texas. They have three children, a girl and two boys. But at year 15 of the marriage, the old Belle was back. I don't know if she just got bored or she just got caught. One day, there's this huge drama in the street. And her husband is confronting a man that Belle is with. Are you unduly familiar with my wife? And then yelling at Belle, are you spending all my money on what? This guy? Huge fight. The very next day, Belle filed for divorce. She said, quote, 
I have left him for good. We have not lived happily together for some years. I have sued for divorce, alimony, and the custody of our four children. Four children? I just said three. Yes. Remember baby Grace from her first husband? You don't have to remember her for very long because soon she will mysteriously be, in the words of Belle Boyd, dead to the family. But the old rascally Belle isn't going to go away. Just a couple months later, she marries again, not to the guy with the fight in the street, this time to an actor named Nathaniel High, who is 17 years her junior. She's 41. He's 24. Oh, yeah. And the two of them work up a new stage show. And for several years, the family just tours the country together, performing the show. Sometimes the kids are on stage. Sometimes they're not. That's how they make their living, going from one town to another. Her performances were often a dramatic recitation that was first billed as The Dark Days or Memories of a War. And then it kind of got really patriotic and changed to one God, one flag, one people forever. It's so curious to me that she's still reliving her life in the war with her husband. The war was 20 years ago. Her husband was just getting potty trained when she was doing her spying activities. Part of me wants to laugh, but part of me wants to say, you know, it's one of those you-go-girl situations. She continues doing this performance for about 15 years. The year now is 1900, and Belle is in Kilbourne City, Wisconsin. Now it's in the Wisconsin Dells area. It's a nice vacation spot. Very beautiful. I strongly recommend going. It's lovely. But it wasn't lovely for Belle. She suffered a heart attack, and she died there in Wisconsin. And that's where she's buried. Her headstone reads, Belle Boyd, Confederate spy, born in Virginia, died in Wisconsin, and was buried in Spring Grove Cemetery, erected by a comrade. And now let's talk about media. Okay, let's start with books. The one that I used most heavily for Elizabeth Van Loo's story is Southern Lady, Yankee Spy, the true story of Elizabeth Van Lu, a Union agent in the heart of the Confederacy by Elizabeth R. Varon. It's a very good birth-to-death biography, and if that's how you like your biographies, go with that one. If you like your biographies a little less linear and more... Um, creative nonfiction. It's not that the information in it is wrong. There might just be sentences that the characters didn't say. And and the story is laid out like a novel. And that book would be Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, Four Women Undercover in the Civil War by Karen Abbott. For middle grade, I'd recommend Elizabeth Van Lu, Civil War Spy by Heidi Schaff. I don't usually read historical fiction. I just don't have time. Um, but I actually <laughs> uh, I actually thought that this one was nonfiction when I got it. So I started reading it, and I really liked it. And then when I found out it was historical fiction, I kept reading because it seemed to be very well-researched. It's called Miss Lizzie's War, The Double Life of Southern Belle Spy, Elizabeth Van Lu by Rosemary Aganito. There's one more historical fiction that I didn't read but I'm going to tell you about it because I really like the author's website. I'm going to direct you to it in the show notes. She has some really great um, 
photographs and documentation that she found while researching the life of Belle Boyd. She has a whole page on she has a whole page on research that she found about um, Belle's maid, Eliza Corsley, even after the war and the wonderful life that she had. So I haven't read this book, but I'm just going to, but I think it's going to be good. It's called A Rebellious Woman, and it's by Claire J. Griffins. As far as books for Belle Boyd, uh, these are all over the place. I honestly think, you know, grab these books and then read them, and you'll see what I mean by there's no consensus. Belle Boyd, Confederate Spy by Richard Snow. It's really an essay. I got it as a Kindle book, but it's a a short, I think it's like 14 pages. It's an essay about Belle's life. Of course, read uh, Belle's work herself, Belle Boyd in Camp and Prison by Belle Boyd. I will link you up to one online. It has a very interesting introduction by historian Sharon Kennedy Knoll. It's really... um, it's a biography of Bell's life, but um, the author kind of takes some sides and, and talks about bigger concepts and bigger patterns in Bell's life. And I thought it was very helpful. Another book I got was Bell Boyd, The Controversial Life and Legacy of Civil War's Most Famous Spy. This is compiled by Charles River Editors. As far as online, um, there was a really interesting article that I read about, uh, it's called um, Women, Soldiers, Spies, and Vivandiers, which is probably mispronounced. And (laughs) it basically just means women who aided support to military regiments. But what it is is a compilation of articles. It was done by a University of Texas grad student named Vicki Betts. It's articles from Civil War newspapers, and it comes out to be this really cool list of items and activities and things that women did during the Civil War. You can visit Elizabeth Van Loo's St. John's Episcopal Church. You can visit it. You can tour it. You can worship there. I'll link you up online. The Bellevue School, I will link you to their website because I really was impressed that they put the history of the property on their website. Uh, You can't tour that, but you could probably look at it from the outside. As far as moving pictures go, uh, I think Bell's story would make a movie, but nobody would believe it. (laughs) It's so wild. But I did find a very interesting uh, YouTube video that I'll put in the show notes It's a YouTube video about the Van Loo House on Church Hill. It's produced by a team from the historic St. John's Church in Richmond and a guest from the National Park Service, who's an expert on the Van Loo family. As for an end quote, I'm going to leave you with a very short quote from Elizabeth Van Loo about the lives of women who were doing what she was doing, spying during the Civil War. We have to be careful and circumspect, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review for us on whatever podcatcher you're listening to this now. You can catch us on our social media. Uh, we have a public Facebook page that we don't really post too much on except announcements. We do have a very active private Facebook group called the History Chicks Lounge. Beckett is on Instagram. I am a little more active than Beckett on Twitter. 
And this is the part where we usually talk about openings for our next field trip, the one to Boston and Newport. But to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know if there are any more. But if you're interested in joining us, it's in October. It's coming up really soon. I will put a link to Like Minds Travel in the show notes, and you can find out if it's sold out yet or not. I do know. There are tickets for our Boston Locals Meetup Dinner. It's a harbor cruise dinner with an open bar and a DJ. Nice. It's on October 21st. I'll put a link to Like Minds Travel where you can get more information and sign up on the show notes. Beckett and I are both so excited about this trip and really looking forward to seeing you there. The break music was Secret Place by Mary Ellen Kirk. And our end song is Michael Joy, Queen of the Underground. Till next time. Mending in time or two Of a cold life below Go flowers round us through She sings of a cry It's an old and doleful sound Sometimes to see